Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world. Hey, Biblical World listeners, this is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver, and this is the fifth of our series on five views of the Exodus from Egypt. This one is with Peter Feynman, and he is espousing the Levite Hexas view, and he's hosted today by Mark Jansen and Chris McKinney. But thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to onscript.study forward slash donate. And just to let you know, if you aren't aware that we have another podcast called Onscript, and that features discussions with scholars about matters related to biblical studies and theology. Uh, So you can check that out if you aren't aware of that already. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to On Script Biblical World Podcast. I am your co-host today. Um, I'm Chris McKinney, and I'm joined by uh, Dr. Mark Jansen. Uh, we are continuing our series through the five points of the Exodus, looking at questions about historicity, um, the relationship of the historical event of the Exodus, if it is historical, and the Bible, and we've had thus far uh, several scholars on already uh, on this five views, and it's been a a great conversation. Today we are joined by Dr. Peter Feynman. Uh, I'm going to let Mark introduce the the book a little bit more and also introduce our guest. All right, thanks Chris. Always a uh, privilege to join you. The the book, as you know, was was kind of something I put together in response to sort of talking to people and finding out that many people had this idea of the Exodus that was fairly simplistic, right? Like there's this documentary they watch and then that must be the, you know, set in stone truth. And almost all of those documentaries and blogs and those kind of sources really cover it very lopsidedly, like one-sided, usually espousing, I would say the early date, but not always. Um, and, and there's of course much more debate than that in scholarship, but scholars are not always in dialogue with each other and these things within one print source, and they don't always really write to an educated lay audience. So I wanted to provide a book that would help people who are interested in the Exodus, but not necessarily specialists, see the different angles of the debate and get more familiar with the, the data and the evidence. And so we have each contributor write their own chapter for about 10,000 words, and then we have each contributor respond to one another for a couple thousand within that chapter. And then the original chapter author has sort of the final say within that part of the book, and then we move on to the next view. So that's kind of the, the vision behind the book and the, the way it sort of plays out and the function of it. So um, let me now introduce uh, Peter Feynman for our audience. He is the founder and president of the Institute of History, Archaeology, and Education. He received a BA in history from the University of Pennsylvania, an MED and an MBA from New York University, and an EDD from Columbia University. He is the author of Jerusalem Throne Games, which is an analysis on the writing of the Hebrew Bible, includes aspects like source criticism, and also writes about biblical history. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. 
So what we've been doing really for each of these interviews, we're trying to have a conversation, not so much a debate or, uh, you know, some rigid outline of topics. But the first starting point, of course, is for you to just explain your view on the Exodus and what makes it unique and what your methodology is and what kind of the most important maybe three or so pieces of evidence for that view are. I think my approach is a little different. For me, Egyptologists avoid the Exodus like the plague. And biblical scholars (laughs) avoid Egypt. So there's no meeting. You have two separate groups. The Egyptologists tend not to have any analysis or writings or investigation of the Exodus, unless maybe they're evangelical, in which case they have an interest in it. But if you were to attend an Egyptian conference, you would not really know the Exodus was a topic that ever existed or anything about it. But something similar happens when you look at the biblical side. There you get people interested in the Bible as literature. When was the story written? Why was it written? What does it mean for how we should act today? But you get very little into the history itself. Like how could this event, how could the American Revolution ever happen? Okay, we celebrate July 4th, but how did this event really occur or did it really occur back then almost 250 years ago? And you see that play out in the book that we had in in our five views. In that in some cases, people are are taking what I would call an evangelical approach and they look at the text more or less as a literary, as a literal truth and proceed from there and try to take elements of that and see if they could match it up to something in Egypt. In one case, I don't know if you discussed this or not, but I did in in my contribution, or my rejoinders rather, and comments, that some people anticipated that certain other people would take an evangelical approach and already preemptively started criticizing it before they had even read it. Yeah, it was in one their original chapter, so they hadn't actually read the others. Like, you all write your chapters first to kind of... Right. So the, instead yeah. of taking the chapter to express their own point of view, they took part of it to criticize one of the other views that they hadn't even read yet and were going to have an opportunity to respond to in their comments anyway. And then in one case, it backfired because you've had an evangelical approach, uh, author, take a strictly archaeological approach. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing just didn't work. But then on the biblical side, as I was saying, you get people who, beyond trying to take some aspect and say, oh, this matches up to something we know in Egypt, there's no sense of trying to create an historical narrative or story that fits it into Egyptian scholarship, meaning Egyptians, uh, Egyptologists have written about the history, let's say, I took Ramses. So they've written a lot about the New Kingdom, the 13th century, the time of Ramses, but the biblical scholars don't try to place it 
in that time frame any meaningful historical sense. Because the other approaches, they just say, well, it was all made up in Persian times and exilic times. So why do we even need to spend the effort trying to locate it or situate it into an historical setting when we don't consider it to be historical in the first place? Well, I, I think we definitely share the frustration of that sort of blanket dismissal, which also ignores a lot of the the Egyptian elements in the text, which don't make sense, really, if they're making the whole thing up in the Persian era, you know, like the, the reed basket, the the different cluster alone words. And I think we definitely share that frustration. I quite agree with you. For me, I think one of the signal biblical scholarship uh, achievements in the 20th century was eliminating the Exodus as a real event in history. And I sort of go, you know, that's it. We don't have to deal with it anymore. And if you're an Egyptologist, you're trying to prove yourself as a real scholar, as someone to be taken seriously with tenure track and academic articles. You don't have time to waste on all that miracle stuff and, uh, and all that religion stuff that would detract from your reputation. So what I've learned people tend to do is, and he's not one of the contributors, they go, Oh, yeah, didn't Donald Redford say that had something to do with the Hyksos? And once they said that, they said, okay, now I'm done. I don't need to say anything else about it because Redford has solved it as far as we're concerned, and we can ignore it from this point forward. So I'm trying to say, how can we address this? Suppose there was no Bible. Suppose all you had was the Egyptian archaeological record. What could you learn from it? Now, I didn't do that exclusively in my contribution, but a lot of it was based on that. A lot of it was based on, even without the Bible, there's still things we can learn from Egypt. Now, admittedly, there is the Bible, so it's always in the back of our mind, but that's a little different. Uh, one area that I had problems with uh, and this was more on, on a couple of the papers. Are we supposed to mention names here in this or not? Okay, uh, by me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, well, there were, there were two people who did something that I thought was not academically sound. And that was quoting vocabulary as uh, speaking. That a person said something because it said so in the Bible. And I had a lot of problems with that. And I have it with the Josephus question. I know you have uh, in your list of things, too. Mm -hmm. That it's one thing to look at the archaeology. And this is the example I use in the book. And say, okay, we know there's a Troy. We know there's a real city there. But that doesn't tell us that characters said any of the things Homer wrote. So if you want to say that, you always have to qualify that with according to the story as opposed to our saying, well, we know George Washington said this, or we know Thomas Jefferson wrote that. When some of the contributors crossed that line, from my point of view, that's when they went too far, and that undermines the case. But I can easily understand why people would do that, but I think you have that's where in your methodology you have to make a decision up front. How am I going to approach the telling of the story? Am I going to... Subject any document to the same criteria that I would if I was studying the revolution, let's say, where we have documents that we can easily date to the time period, 
or am I going to sort of go back and forth between archaeology and biblical text uh, as if they're they're equal in the academic arena, uh, which they're not. It's, yeah, you make an interesting point on the uh, sort of the initial starting point is how I tend to phrase it. I don't remember if you remember the initial email that I sent out to each of you uh, asking if you were interested in contributing. And one of the things that I wanted each chapter to address, which some do more than others, admittedly, is what your initial starting point is and what evidence you weigh the most. So you have, not just within our book, but just with the Exodus in general, you have people whose starting point is essentially, the Bible says it, that's good enough for me, we don't need the rest of this stuff. And they're busy scrambling, trying to dismiss different chronological details and archaeological details because they don't perceive that they sync up with a literal reading of certain things like, you know, 480 years in First Kings. And, and then you have people who, it kind of cuts both ways, because then you have people who would say, well, it's the Bible. We can't treat it like an ancient history source. And I actually disagree with both of those perspectives, even though I am an evangelical Christian. But I don't think we should—I think it's too lazy to just say, well, it's in the Bible. That's enough. And I also think it's you know, greatly unfair to take the Bible and say, well, essentially because people still believe it today, we can't use it for history. Which the criteria being, you know, the presence of a deity and the interactions of the, you know, of God and Yahweh doing things. Well, I mean, every ancient text is full of the gods. So I but think th those are that, both that's problematic. That's a good point, right there. It's on the gods. When if you put in your in your in this book right here, there it is. My <laughs> <I> one prop. <laughs> if you put in your analysis, and then God said, then at that point, for me you lose the academic approach. You can't just say, and Zeus said, or and Ra said, or and Marduk said. You can say people believed Alexander was the son of Zeus, or he claimed he was the son of Zeus. But that's very different than saying Zeus did this, or Marduk right. did this, or Ra did this. Mm -hmm. So if you want to say, according to the story, God said such and such whether it's Amun-Ra to Ramses at Kadesh, which you could debate whether that, that really occurred, or whether it's at the burning bush. But these are things you, sh you can't go back and forth. Right. And for me, if you say, Joshua said this, okay, I don't know that. How do I know Joshua said that? You know, then you say, oh, well, I'm doing this biblical. I take the Bible literally. You can say that. Or I've done my uh, documentary hypothesis approach, and therefore I conclude that this is really from, let's say, the 10th century. But that still doesn't put the words in the mouth of a person. Mm -hmm. You still don't know what Achilles really said or didn't say, to use the Trojan War example that I had in the book. There's a limit to how far you can go with that approach. So I tried to avoid that completely, whereas I know some of the other contributors did not. Yeah, there's a limit to what we can expect history and archaeology to do for us. Right? Like, tell Dan Stila basically establishes that an enemy of Israel and Judah had heard of David. And House of David is dynastic. Can't really tell us a thing about David and Goliath. On the same the token... I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you brought up Kadesh, and then we should probably get to your view. <laughs> but... We can't, of course, prove that Amun came down upon Ramses and saved the day and no one would even attempt it. But at the same time, no one would also say, well, because he mentions Amun, the whole thing's fiction. That's my point when it comes to someone like Moses. 
let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater well, just because there's theology. I can jump ahead theology. a little now to your Josephus question. Yeah. Because the same thing comes up. He's most well known probably for um, the Battle of Masada. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that's a real place. We know the Romans were there. We can see archaeologically the camps that they had set up there. We know there were people defending Masada. But that doesn't prove the dialogue that Josephus has. You can't make that leap. You can suggest it. You can say according to the story. But you can't say Josephus has any evidence that that dialogue really occurred. Or oh, maybe some old woman snuck out and told him. And a autobiography, you can. You can say, well, this is what I said. Okay, that's fine. But this is the problem where I, I think we have to draw lines in our methodology on how we're trying to analyze it. Now, you can go to some people and you can hear their presentation at, say, RC, the American Research Center in Egypt, or ASOR, the American School of Oriental Research. Overseas research now. What? American schools of overseas research <laughs> They changed now. it. They changed oh, it. Oh, right, right. right. Yeah. And Keep going. SBL, Society of Biblical Literature. And at the end of the presentation, like if, if Jim Hoffmeyer was giving one, you wouldn't know that that person's an evangelical. Because they give the presentation there a straightforward archaeology type approach. Mm. But that's different if you hear him speak in an evangelical environment to an evangelical audience where then he can express his personal religious views. So he makes that distinction. He knows when he's in one, and he knows when he's in the other. And in this book, he made a decision to express as an archaeologist the way he would at one of those academic conferences. That was a decision. He could have gone the other way, but he didn't. So I'm just pointing out, people have these decisions to make, and then how far they're going to go um, before they are mixing and matching them, and you're saying, well, you, you can't really do that. That's, that's not valid. So let's, let's get to your view specifically and um, what you think happened with the Exodus and your, your main, again, like three or so pieces of evidence or reason. Well, I started out pretty strongly in my opening sentence, mm -hmm. which I did on purpose, uh, saying that there was an Exodus. It wasn't the time of Ramses. It was in this year. They even had a day on it and a time of day. So I'm pretty clear on there's an historical event going on. And my approach then is to try to understand it as history, not as religion, not as theology, but as history. And then you can take it afterwards. How did people remember the event? How did they choose to write it down? How did they change it and so forth? In effect, I'm doing that. It's like to move ahead a little with the uh, my next project, and I sent you part of it mm -hmm. already. As I was looking at the story of Osiris in Egypt, and that's a story with many levels. The final version that we have, the canonical version, so to speak, not that it's technically canonical, from the time of Plutarch, went through many stages over 3,000 years. And one of the chapters which you'll read, I try to outline some of those stages 
and how they reflect the changes that were occurring within Egypt. And I think you could do the same with the Exodus story or the same with the American Revolution or Thanksgiving to use Gary's favorite example. You know, stories change over time because our world changes over time. That doesn't mean there isn't an original historical truth to it. For, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with the Osiris myth, could you give us some like examples of uh, kind of the, just like the basis for the story and then how, what are some changes that you're alluding to? Well, the basic story as it's well known from the end is where this child Horus, who will become the future king of Egypt, and all kings are identified with Horus, is hidden in the delta, in the marshes, in the bulrushes by his mother from the threat of the king of Egypt, who was his uncle, set from uh, killing him, from murdering him. And then the story goes on to how he makes his claim for the throne, how he fights his uncle, and how he eventually prevails and becomes the king of Egypt. Well, if you look back 3,000 years at the beginning, when Egypt was just being created as a country, a lot of that part didn't exist. The values we have of Set as this evil villain person, as the barren desert, that wasn't part of the original story. Osiris, the father, wasn't part of the original story. So these are things that got added on through the years through the priests at Heliopolis as they were adjusting to different situations. And I just make a point, I go into that a little more detail, but we look at the final version, but that's not necessarily the original version. Yeah, the same thing's probably happening with Gilgamesh and all these other, I mean, any really ancient famous story. Right. So this, this almost sounds a bit more like cultural memory in a way, right, as, as each era will kind of put its own unique flavor to the story. Right, there is cultural memory. So I, I, I agree with Ron about that on that part. Mm -hmm. um, we retell the story, but I have an historical origin to that that he doesn't always have, uh, or his is a little harder to pin down. Yeah, I think he would say there's so much memory, it's it's too hard to get to the history, but he didn't outright dismiss it. But he thinks tracing it's impossible. Let, let's take Thanksgiving. Remember in the old days before the virus, <laughs> there was a huge parade in New York. Mm -hmm. Now, if you saw the Thanksgiving parade in New York and you heard about the Pilgrim Thanksgiving holiday, there's no real way you would connect the two. They're not even at the same time of year. One is in September and the other is in November. But you can look at what happened and how the story changed, particularly with Abraham Lincoln. And then with Macy's, of course, and then say, okay, these are steps in how a story evolved as a culture evolved. But there is a real event that started the whole process. There is a real event in the Exodus that started the process. Sure. And Thanksgiving is a really fun example. I read a, a, over winter break, I read The First Thanksgiving, a book by Robert McKenzie. And it's a really fascinating look at 
all the layers of how that story has changed. But we also have great detailed sources about the Puritans and what they believe, for example, that we can get back to what was more likely actually happening because it's you know more recent and things like that. But a lot of our traditions come out of this almost romanticized novel in like the late 19th century or second half of the 19th century that ended up being a bestseller essentially and has influenced like our, you know, our big picnic outside kind of mindset. So sometimes cultural memory just gets it radically wrong if we're trying to actually trace what happened. And then with the Thanksgiving story, at least we're fortunate to have a lot of personal letters and things that the pilgrims actually wrote that let us get a better idea of what they would have thought and actually inform us under their actions. And here, relating it to the Exodus, <laughs> you can take the Thanksgiving story and then backtrack it to England and say, how did England celebrate the harvest? How did they give thanks for the food? And you can do the same here with the biblical story. You can backtrack it to Egypt and say, where did these traditions come from? How, how did people live in Egypt? What did they do? So uh, one of the points of agreement within the book, for sure, that we can just kind of mention it real quick to set up my question is the strong presence of Semites in Egypt. I don't think you'd find a, a single Egyptologist or archaeologist worth his salt who would deny that there are lots of Semites in the Delta in the Second Intermediate Period and, and into the early New Kingdom. Um, but we need to talk about the Hyksos and the importance of them for your view. And let me just give a quick overview of who they were for listeners who may not be familiar they're basically a group of people who are Semites who settle in Egypt in the Nile Delta around 1640 or so BC and end up ruling the northern half of Egypt and form basically the 15th and 16th dynasties in Egypt until they're eventually driven out by Egyptians from the uh, lower half of Egypt or the upper half of Egypt, the southern half of Egypt, upper Egypt. And they're very important for your view. So what's the connection you draw there? And can you explain that a little bit more? Okay, let me combine your Semite and your Hyksos comments you just made. Yes, you're right. Egyptologists are much more aware now of the Semitic presence in Egypt for centuries. And a lot of this has to do with the VTAX excavations at Avaris, and then going back to Egyptian sources. So what we see is, and this is part of gets to my project now, this idea of the Hyksos as invaders, as, may, as really occupying force that Egypt needs to be liberated from, is gradually weakening because there's more and more awareness that the Semitic peoples were around for centuries before the Hyksos actually took power. And they didn't disappear after the Hyksos no longer were in power. So I think you'll see more and more Egyptologists aware of that uh, and more and more discussions about that in connection with the increased knowledge about the Hyksos from the excavations that have been going on uh, at Avaris at the Ramses. But related to that, there's also the, the awareness that Hyksos is not the name of a race. It's not the name of an ethnic group. It's a title. It's a title the Egyptians used for multiple peoples because it's just rulers of foreign lands. Now, typically, it gets used for the 15th dynasty, which is called the Hyksos dynasty. But as, as some of the Egyptologists keep writing about, 
That only refers to the rulers, not all the Semitic peoples who were in the Delta area, in the land of Goshen at that time. It refers to the kings, the people who are in charge. And we don't have a good vocabulary now for really differentiating the six Hyksos kings from the 15th dynasty, unless you call it the 15th dynasty, from the other Semitic peoples who were there and may get lumped into the Hyksos. So whether there was this big migration or not is, is a whole other matter. What there seems to have been is a power back. That is, as the Middle Kingdom collapsed and those kings of the 13th dynasty could no longer maintain rule over all the lands, other people stepped in to fill the breach, including these people we call Ixos. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they call themselves Ixos. We don't really know for sure what these people actually call themselves because Hyksos is an Egyptian term. Okay, can I can I jump in here just for a second? And just so I'm trying to uh, to bring together the points you're making and just so I understand and our listeners understand. So the way it, the way it is based upon what you've said and what Mark have said is we have the Hyksos as a ruling class ruling in Egypt during during this period that are Semitic, that definitely arise uh, f- um, on the historical on the historical scene. And of course, we have different uh, historical sources talking about this with Manetho and Josephus and so on that have their own set of problems. But what you're saying is, yes, these were historical, um, these were historical figures that uh, made up the 15th and maybe the 16th dynasty, but they're only part of a larger group of Semitics uh, Semitic peoples that came into uh, Egypt over the course of the second millennium, early to mid second millennium. And then some of those, what we might call Hyksos that weren't rulers continue to live in Egypt uh, and that perhaps the biblical um, Israelites and so on would be part of that group. Is that, would that be a fair assessment of where we are until now? It's a little more than that. Okay. The Semitic presence in Egypt going back even before there was a United Kingdom, and it was mainly trade between like the Negev area and uh, the Delta area. And Semitic print, there was never really a time when there weren't Semites in Egypt once you had a United Kingdom. The number may have changed, but they were always there. What happens is at various times, particularly as the central government gets weaker, local people then begin to take more uh, roles of authority and power. So yes, you're right in what you say about that. And then at some point, it wasn't just merchants and traders, but military people as well, people with military background. But the number of Semites increased after the Hyksos too, because then you started to get the conquest in the land of Canaan. And with Tutmos III in the 15th century and Amenhotep II after him, you have thousands, if not tens of thousands of people brought in as captives. So to lump them all together and just say, well, they're Semitic, is a little like saying, well, there are all these Americans from Europe who came here. And say, well, yeah, but the Dutch didn't necessarily get along with the British or get along with the French. And then there were Irish and they're German and Italian. You know, we know with the Europeans, we wouldn't just lump them in as one people. And the danger with the Semitic people is you can do the same thing 
in Egypt. There are people who have been there for centuries. There are people who are new captains. There are people who are merchants. There are people who are in the military. So, as I said, we don't really have the good background, the good census record, the good terminology to try to separate all these different peoples. Yeah, I think that's, except for we know the Hyksos are the rulers, and the Egyptian texts are pretty clear that they kick them out. And B talk and others and their work at Avaris, we see assimilated culture, right, with, with certain Semitic elements, with Egyptian elements. So we know that they don't literally drive every single Semite out. They even intermarry with them. So I don't think anyone's really saying, oh, there's still Hyksos here, to be fair. At least to Egyptologists, they would almost across the board agree they're, they're driven out, but there's still Semites remaining. But they're not Hyksos. If you mean, were the rule, was the ruling dynasty? thrown out, Apophis, the last Hyksos king, then the answer is yes. That's, that's hardly anybody. That's just him and, and his own army, really. No, I, see, I don't, I, but how did they take over the half of the region? I think they're a more significant force than that suggests, that, that statement. It's not just like a king and like 10 soldiers. How did they take over in Egypt? I'm just saying they're powerful enough that it took a protracted war. There, there's something more than just a king and a one fighting force. But the point is, they never ever drove all the Semites out either. They just drove out the Hyksos. Well, one of the issues I get into in my forthcoming work, which you don't have, don't have yet, is that we are often guilty of 18th Dynasty propaganda spin. And that is that somehow this dynasty in Thebes, first the 17th tribes and then the 18th dynasty, is liberating the country from these hated people, which is what Manitho would sort of describe. Right. But there's no record that the people in Lower Egypt actually had any antagonism towards the Hyksos. And in fact, the 19th dynasty under Seti, what does it do? It makes the Hyksos capital its own capital and celebrates the Hyksos 400 years in Egypt. So we had a tendency to adopt the 18th dynasty view of the Hyksos as foreign invaders who had to be thrown out so we could liberate our people. Now, you may have noticed that there just recently was a uh, press release that uh, on the skull of Sekhen and Ra, I don't know if you saw that mm -hmm. or not, uh, that Egypt had conducted. And they found besides the five holes in his head, which is actually quite a lot of holes, <laughs> he had even more injuries. That would be a good slide to show if you want to. Yeah, I, I like to freak out my Civ students with his mummy. It's got the big gash and then the one with the eyes and one above his he had even more injuries than uh, they originally thought. That when he was uh, mummified, the embalmers used their techniques to try to camouflage some mm -hmm. of his wounds. Same with Ramses III. Well, right. Now we yeah. know where he was assassinated. Mm -hmm. But my point is, when the article came out from Egypt, it talked about the Hyksos occupiers, that they had occupied the land as opposed to filling a vacuum when the Middle Kingdom collapsed. You see the difference in approach you can take on that? And 
the scholarship tends to go with, or the popular image tends to go with, they were invaders who conquered Lower Egypt and ruled until they were thrown out, as opposed to the Egyptian Middle Kingdom collapsed and they filled a vacuum. And then the 18th dynasty said, you know, we want to be the alpha male king of the mountains and we'll throw you out. No real religion involved, no real, other than power politics, that's the only thing. They're not there to, to liberate their people. They want to be in charge. Yeah, there's certainly an obvious ideology and a bias in their texts. I think some of the invader stuff goes back to weapons and burials. But Egyptologists, to be fair, are still debating whether they're invaders or more peaceful and then they come to power. Um, and I don't think we'll be able to settle that anytime soon. I wonder if we might shift gears a minute um, and talk about something else that really resonates for people with the Exodus, and that is the timeless themes as we're you know in the middle of Passover here. And maybe that kind of relates to cultural memory as well. But if you might talk about what, what that the value of those themes even today is. Well, you're right. This is the perfect example of cultural theme as we were memory as we were talking about with Thanksgiving. The reason why these stories get told over and over and retold and revised is because they resonate with people in the present. It's not because all these people are scholars and going for PhDs or want to write academic papers. They're not necessarily that interested in what happened back then as to how can I take this image and make it mean something for me today. Mm -hmm. So you get a variety of stories. For example, in the Seder, I have a, one of my sisters will always change the dialogue to include the daughters. <laughs> it's not in the Seder ceremony, the son does this or that. She goes, you know, the, da the daughter does this or this. So it's women, I say, well, we can make the Exodus story our own story by um, focusing on Miriam or emphasizing different parts of the story. And, and of course, there's the Black experience in the United States always had a strong relation to the Exodus because of slavery. Yeah, and the theme of deliverance and, and trusting it to the Lord and all that kind of stuff. But even the founding of the United States, one of the original seal proposals for the, for the country was Moses at the Red Sea, at the sea. So they strongly identified King George with Pharaoh and America as the Israelites. And then to take the greatest Exodus scholar of them all, Cecil B. DeMille, <laughs> whose story is probably better known than any other version. <laughs> I did lead uh, with it in page one. <laughs> but but he, his story also is very tied into the values of the 1950s, uh -huh. into the Cold War, into the end of British colonialism, and things like that. But that just shows you how the story can be told over and over again um, to reflect different values. I mean, here we are, you know, 4,000 years later or whatever, almost still talking about it and, and trying to talk about it in deep and meaningful ways and not just pedantic ways. Yeah, I think I think another another interesting point, if I can jump in here, that as far as this cultural memory stuff, that as we've gone through and talked to a number of scholars on this on this point, yes, it has this idea of a ongoing and shifting understanding of, of cultural memory as the story is told and retold. Um, but I, I think some of the interesting things to me are 
um, the polemics that you have in uh, in Exodus, especially against New Kingdom ideas, which in and of itself is a kind of reversal of cultural memory. In other words, they're taking something that they see around them that is a cultural memory, let's say, among the Egyptians, and they're turning it on its head. And so everything really itself is is based upon um, the way that they're perceiving the things that are happening to them, the way that others might have perceived them. And then, uh, for instance, as we've, as we've talked about in other episodes, you know, the idea of, of, of Yahweh out-pharaohing Pharaoh. Um, and, and so even those ideas where they're not following along with a kind of cultural memory component that they agree with, oftentimes they will turn it on its head, whether we're talking about the Egyptian gods that are being um, destroyed or judged, as Exodus twelve twelve says, or you know this idea of out pharaohing pharaoh. Yeah, turning you know get rid of, get of the idea of, of maat. Um, so I think it's just a relevant topic anytime we approach, particularly when it's these big picture foundational stories. I mean, you could make the same case for what you see in the opening chapters of Genesis, which have been compared with Egyptian and especially Mesopotamian stories, such as the flood story, which brings on a lot of the same components, but the core of the story, the, 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 the morality of the story, often is very different than what the original uh, story would have been in its, uh, in its own context, in this case, Mesopotamia, and in the case we're talking about here in Egypt. And so it's just very interesting, as you've been alluding to, to make this connection not only with, with the Exodus, but to think about how the Exodus then becomes something that can be adapted and used with England and, of course, the U.S. and so on. Um, and so it's just, it's very interesting the way that we connect as people around these central ideas, both the ones that resonate with us, but also ones that we disagree with and kind of turn on their head. Well, for me, I like to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start, and that's with the historical Exodus. Well, when you look at the two parties of the covenant, the first party of the covenant is Yahweh who took the out of the land of Egypt. So that's a pretty strong definition of a rejection of just what you were talking about. doesn't go into all the details of exactly what is being rejected, but it's like if you declare your independence on July 4th, you're taking a hard stand. You can elaborate on that, but you got the basic right there. We are not Egypt. That is not our lifestyle. Our lifestyle is going to be different. And even if we don't have it fully formulated right now, the idea is still imprinted on us. And as we go forward, that idea will still define us, that we are not Egypt. And I do think you see um, opposition. I think Egyptologists like to use the phrase topsy-turvy. I don't know exactly where that comes from. Maybe you know, Mark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but Just when the world is upside down, made you know, when Ma Ma'at, the sense of cosmic harmony and order, is turned upside down. And I think it, uh, Moses and uh, is, uh, is that kind of a guy, <laughs> is that he turned Egyptian mm -hmm. values upside down. Doesn't mean every value all at once, but he got it started. And then afterwards, others can, can carry on with it. And, and certainly ancient Israelites from, you know, Joshua Judges on, if you want to use those books as a general point of reference, believed in 
the power of the memory of the Exodus as foundational to their becoming a nation and, and the part of, uh, you know, that the covenant and God bringing them out of Israel is one of the prefaces is that because of that, this is who you should serve. And it was so foundational. I mean, it's referenced, what, 200 times or something in the whole Hebrew Bible when you get all the way through the prophets. So they would have thought of this as the foundational memory. And I, I think we have to just make sure we don't throw fiction into the word memory when we talk about it. You bring up a good point when you talk about the covenant. Because what do biblical scholars usually do when you start talking about the covenant? They start looking for the Hittite treaties, and they start looking at the Assyrian treaties. They don't look at how does the covenant relate to the Egyptian values, whether it's Ma'at or Osiris or whatever. They don't compare them to Egypt at all. They just compare them to Hittite and Assyrian, and they must have borrowed it from them, and that's how we know it's all fake. As opposed to looking at a cultural rejection of the Egyptian cultural construct. Well, let me let me jump in here. We normally do it in the middle, but since we're we're wrapping up here, we gotta always ask you these hard hitting questions. Something we do with on script. Uh, coffee, tea, or energy drink. What do you prefer, Peter? Oh, you know. I think I'm like that donkey who would die. You know that story? Mm -mm. It, you have a donkey between two <laughs> piles of hay, equidistant, in the exact middle. <laughs> and the donkey starves to death. Because can't make up its mind <laughs> which way to go. Because they're the exact same distance apart. Oh, okay. This so is a new one. So you're willing to be the middle ground contributor on our sequel, Five Views on Coffee or Tea. I tend more towards <laughs> coffee than tea. <laughs> okay. Uh, some, uh, what, what is your favorite novel? Well, I can tell you the book that got me started in all this. And you'll probably have heard of it. Okay. James Michener, The Source. Ah, ah good one. Uh -huh. Very good one. When I, mentioned, I read that in high school. And probably college by the time I got done. It's, you know, really, <laughs> it's, a, th it's a thick one. It's the, it's the kind of the fictitious version of the Megiddo excavations, correct? Well, it's based on that. But you see, there's a lot of uh, truth into that, too, in uh, the ideas of the development over time that took place in one area. It doesn't matter that the names of these characters are, are fictional, but the changes in lifestyle that occurred Mm -hmm. over the different uh, layers that they were excavated and the need for the source, the water, the tunnel. Well, that's true. Right. Yeah, it's a great, it's a fantastic book that still holds up. If I could do a TV series, I would do The Source. By I, would, I would watch it. Yeah, definitely. I would do you know, maybe <laughs> a two or three year series focusing on the different levels and going through all these stone and copper and bronze and iron and agri and just follow the history all the way through. It goes beyond biblical times, of course. Right. And to me, that was the story that said, wow, this is really interesting. Well, I was able to take the whole thing, past and present, and weave it together into one story. And I was, I was really impressed with that. Well, they did just do the movie The Dig. Uh, about the Anglo-Saxon ship that was found in, in England, and it got great reviews on Netflix. So who knows? Maybe there's that 
um, that that no, studio. I'm out not there. talking about doing it as a documentary. Right, as as a as a fictitious, and this one character, the one actor, would be there in all the different layers over yeah. over thousands of years. Yeah, but his time period would be different than this tool. So you know, at one time he'd have he'd have a cell phone in his hand, and another he'd have a tablet in his hand. Right, that's Actually, good. He'd have a tablet in both hands. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> our <Yeah>. tablet. <laughs> And their and, tablet. Right. So how, do we tablet. Get from, how do we get from this tablet to this tablet? Yeah. So, um, yes, I would not just do it as a documentary. I would do it with, with real people and story. Well, well, Mishner is a storyteller. Right. He, he yeah. told the story. And, and that, that book, if it wasn't for that book, I don't know if we'd be here right now. <laughs> fascinating book well we want we want to thank you for coming on to the podcast uh we hope that this um that this book sells well and a lot of people get 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 it in their hands and start to read more about the the exodus and dive into all the different views of uh, uh that are out there and there's not just five i bet there's probably at least 500 different views on the exodus existing in scholarship with all these different shades but Mark and your other authors have done a great job giving us a flavor of the views that are out there. And as we've seen, this just remains such a central topic uh, to, to the way I, even the West, as well as the East, it, it identifies itself, whether we're talking about Christianity, Judaism, uh, and even, even secular society uh, is, is largely going to be connected to this in some way because of its um, the, the centrality of it as it's been uh, passed down through the ages. Uh, so we just want to thank you, Peter, for, for coming on. And uh, we look forward to your future projects down the line. And uh, we just want to say thank you to our listeners as we wrap up this series on five points, uh, our five views of the Exodus. Thank you. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging.